Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. As we say goodbye to 2022 and look forward to the year ahead, we wanted to take a moment to reflect on some of the amazing guests we've had on the program over the past year. In this episode, part one of our year in review, you'll hear excerpts from various podcast episodes based on topics such as airway health education, personal stories, healing, airway in the face, and speech and myofunctional therapy. Personally, I had a really hard time pulling this episode together as it was really hard for me to narrow down the perfect excerpt from each episode because every guest brought so much amazing information and insight to the podcast. I'll include links to every episode in the show notes so that if there's something in the excerpt that you hear that resonates with you, you'll be able to access the full episode with just a click. So if you're ready, let's jump into part one of our 2020 year in review. In this first segment, we're going to focus on education. So our journey with our podcast began with the question of why are so many of us sick compared to our ancestors? The answer to that question is the driving force behind this airway movement that the Children's Airway First is part of. In this first segment, we'll hear from award-winning journalist and author James Nestor and dental leader, professor, speaker, Dr. Kevin Boyd. Let's listen to a couple of segments from their episode as James and Kevin lay the educational groundwork for the airway journey. We all know how to breathe, right? We've been doing it since birth. So why do I need to learn how to breathe? Hmm. Well, you could say that same thing about eating or exercising, right? <laughs> right, um, yeah. So uh, it's, if we evolved or grew up in a natural environment, you don't need to learn how to breathe. You don't need to learn how to exercise. You don't need to learn what foods to eat and when. You don't need to relearn how to sleep. But since we aren't in that environment anymore, since we're in an industrial environment, we need to relearn all of these things, how our bodies are naturally supposed to be. And so I'm not going to go move to a cave or, or to the wilderness. I want to live in this environment. And if you're going to live in this environment and not be sick all the time, you need to listen to your body. And you're, it's not just that you need to relearn to breathe, but you re, need to relearn to do all of these different things. And breathing is just a part of that. So we have lost the ability to breathe properly. Just look at the data and, and you'll see that. I was shocked when I first found that, but it's entirely true. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this in some other podcast episodes, which, you know, obviously I'll link to, but and you, you really hit on it. It's the industrial environment. I mean, that's where this shift happened, isn't it? Yeah. And all you have to do is either look at our ancestors, distant okay. ancestors, or look at indigenous populations that are still living in the way that our ancestors did thousands of years ago. And they don't have hypertension. They don't have diabetes. They don't have breathing problems. They don't have respiratory issues. So uh, you know, they don't have lower back pain or foot problems. So all of the, I won't say all, many of the problems most of us living in the industrial world are containing with are problems of our own creation. So if we have created these problems, these health issues for ourselves, then we can help reduce them or get rid of them. And that's exactly what's happening in self-care and health awareness right now all over the world. 
at the core, if it's my understanding, is this whole disevolution that you were referencing, right? The jaws that, you know, that we just suddenly don't have room in our mouths anymore. Well, there's many reasons why we're such poor breathers, and this disevolution is one of many reasons. I think it's the primary driver. Okay. Other other people think, you know, being constantly exposed to allergens, to pollution, to mold, to dust, you know, can contribute to this, which is totally true. But I really think the shrinking of our mouths, the shrinking of the sinus cavities, really had a lot to do with why we become such habitually poor breathers. And when I discovered that, you know, that in the course of about 300 years, this, this came on from close to zero, not quite zero, close to zero to 90% of the population has some sort of malocclusion, which can impact your breathing. Uh, it shocked me because I didn't know that evolution, quote unquote, evolution could act so fast across an entire population, but it can in a single generation. That's that's what we've seen. So, yeah, I, I think it's the main driver. But, you know, I think there's also an argument to be said that these other things have at minimum contributed to it. Us not being able to breathe properly. You've done a lot of research on the modern jaw, and I've heard you speak about Darwinian dentistry. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the differences in our jaws, our jaws versus our ancestors, uh, what caused it and why this is important to our health. You know, it's interesting. Um, I borrowed that term Darwinian dentistry from Randy Nessie, who's a uh, psychiatrist from the University of Michigan now in Arizona and he has had uh, he he created George C. Williams an evolutionary biologist in the 90s uh, this this whole area of evolutionary medicine so he calls you know Darwinian medicine and he wrote a book called why we get sick and I just was inspired by him and and actually talked to him about creating a branch, if you will, or an offshoot, and just call it evolutionary oral medicine. This specifically uh, does the same thing in terms of teaching uh, students, pre-med and medical students, and, and post, uh, post-doc training residencies in, in all branches of medicine about um, evolutionary explanations for, for why we get sick, uh, the title of you know, Nessie's book. And well, why do mouths get sick? You know, why do we get cavities? Why do we get gum disease? Why do we have crooked teeth and, and poorly formed jaws? So that's kind of where that came from. Um, and I've since uh, learned things by looking at skulls, mainly from the, the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of uh, Anthropology and, and Archaeology, studying uh, with Mariana Evans, who is, uh, she was in the orthodontic department when I, uh, with her, uh, joined as a visiting scholar uh, at Penn, and and we x-rayed with uh, cone beam, you know, three-dimensional scans in her, her private practice. We would take skulls out of the museum very carefully with permission and x-ray them and then compare them, uh, the numbers that we use, it's called supplementrics of how orthodontics 
orthodontists and, and other dental practitioners who provide orthodontic services uh, to patients. Um, it, it's, they use those as norms. Uh, well, the norms, the normative values for the lines and angles and how the, you know, the face should be shaped and the jaw should grow are based upon a bunch of Caucasians um, from Cleveland uh, area and in other places um, by a couple of guys, uh, Steiner and Downs and, and later a guy named uh, uh, the, the Bolton Brush Norms, it's called from Case Western. Um, okay. So we wanted to compare what we were getting on all of these people who died before the Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th century uh, and to come up with an anthropologically correct base for, for looking at skulls. So that's how it all started for me. Okay. Okay. And what did, what did you end up finding? I mean, there's obviously a vast difference, correct? Yeah. And, and it's not, Mariana Evans and I, you know, we, we've worked really hard and long eight, eight or nine years now we've been doing this and it, it's really informed the way we practice, but there's other people uh, who've done this. Um, Jerry Rose uh, is, is a dental anthropologist at the University of Arkansas, where I am an, an adjunct uh, assistant professor there uh, working in dental anthropology with some of the graduate students. And he's the one with Rick Robley, who's an orthodontist in Arkansas. They worked together and wrote a paper. And what they discovered is that our jaws in the last you know, maybe a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. you know, that sounds like a long time, doesn't it? But considering- yeah, But it's really not. Well, it's really not. And what we call modern humans or anatomically modern humans have been around for at least 250,000 years. And you know, in order to survive childhood, you had to have perfect jaws. The foundation for you know, getting out of childhood uh, was, was you had to have that. So it's in our genome. Um, but in the last couple hundred years, it's since the Industrial Revolution, jaws have gotten narrower. They've mm -hmm. gotten further back, retrusive, and they've gotten longer. Okay. So our faces have gotten longer. Our jaws have gotten narrower. And our faces have gone backwards. So we call that, you know, uh, retronathia. The Industrial Revolution, how specifically did that impact our jaws? What happened there that's causing everything to get smaller? Well, we think, um, and the hypothesis that, that we've laid out, speculation, if you will, is that it seems to coincide with women entering into the workforce, the, the um, textile mills and coal mines and, you know, they, and, and what did that mean? Well, uh, an ancestral pattern of nursing and weaning uh, that went on, you know, pretty much for our entire existence as anatomically modern humans over 250,000 mm -hmm. years, was that uh, a baby uh, newborn was immediately breastfed on demand for up to 10 to 12 months of age, is maybe exclusively, but certainly the first six, eight months, all they had was breast milk or they died. Well, that helped build a tongue, a baby's tongue, 
starting in utero, really about 20 weeks, is responsible for building itself a home to live in for the rest of its life. And that's called the hard palate. Every journey has a story. And the story of the Children's Airway First Foundation and how our journey began can be found on our website under Savvy Story. In these next several segments, though, you'll hear the personal stories of others and how their journeys have been impacted by their airway disorders. Let's listen as podcast and airway advocate Emma Cooksey, blogger, sleep and mental health advocate Kaisa Bradley, airway stenosis advocate Katherine Anderson, and mother and author Kelly Richardson share their personal stories. So I know everyone has a unique story. For those of you who don't know Emma uh, and, and haven't ever heard her story on her podcast, you can check it out. But go ahead and if you would just share a little bit about your story, about how you found out that you have an airway disorder. So as a child, I had huge tonsils. They call them grade four. They were pretty much touching at the back of my throat. But I grew up, I'm in my 40s now, so I grew up in an era in the UK where they had swung from everybody having their tonsils removed to no one having their tonsils removed. So in order Mm -hmm. to get your tonsils removed, you needed to have a certain number of infections. Like people say strep throat here, we say tonsillitis. But I would always have three a year and they wanted me to have four. (laughs) So clearly I was not really that well and yeah uh, constantly having problems with my tonsils I also had terrible allergies but at the time um I had a big allergy scratch test on my back mm-hmm. and so I had all of these problems which now in retrospect I also was a mouth breather because of what I had going on with the allergies and the tonsils mm-hmm. and I definitely uh went through my childhood mouth breathing all the time could not breathe through my nose nobody ever mentioned that it was a good idea to breathe through your nose so I know that you know where this is going so then as a teenager I had four teeth extracted um, and I had retracted braces for almost three years yeah and I just never really felt well again after that process was done it left me with a very small you know I already had a small mouth and a narrow high arch palate and all these things Mm -hmm. but nobody mentioned that there was anything wrong with that so I just always felt quite tired but I think that during my teenage years I you know could explain it away with like I'm doing a lot of stuff in high school and I'm busy and staying out later Mm -hmm. maybe that's why I'm so tired oh yeah right then I started Mm -hmm. university and I was at university for four years. And during that time, I was always exhausted. And I would go to like lectures at 9am in my pajamas and stuff like that. But of course, like I went to university in Scotland, where I mean, probably like any college, right? Like, everybody's going out drinking all the time. And mm-hmm. And so a lot of it could be explained away by I feel terrible, but then I have been out really late and all these things. Right. So then after university, I spent a year traveling and that's when I really started thinking like there's something wrong with my health. So, but I started crying every morning in the shower, like Mm. every morning. Just from exhaustion? Yeah, just feeling Mm. like when I woke up in the morning, I felt like I hadn't even gone to bed the night before. 
um, and I definitely had a whole bunch of anxiety and I would wake up with a pounding chest all the time and really had every classic symptom of sleep apnea. I hadn't really, just because I was traveling, I hadn't really talked to any doctors. Like I was starting to think there's something not right, but I hadn't Mm -hmm. really talked to anybody about it. So then when I got back to Scotland, I was working in Glasgow and I went to see a GP there. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I kind of said like, this is all that's going on with me. And you know, mainly I feel terrible. Um, And he did like all the blood work and all the stuff um, and came back and just was like, good news. There's nothing wrong. Like we can't find anything wrong. And, you know, it's probably just stress. All of my twenties, I went to the doctor at least once a year to say, I feel terrible. I'm so exhausted. I feel anxious all the time. Mm So I kind of, you know, was treated for anxiety, but nobody Mm -hmm. really got to the root of why I was feeling that way. So I should just say, just so nobody gets confused, at the age of um, 30, I'd gotten married to my husband, who is from the United States, in Scotland. And then we moved to Florida when I was 30. And I got pregnant right away with my first daughter. So then I would go to the doctor and they would say, oh, you're tired and anxious and exhausted because you're pregnant. So years and years of just never getting to the bottom of what happened. So Mm -hmm. then um, I was 30 with um, my daughter was it was actually like no joke, like a week or two weeks after I'd been to the doctor and they said, you're just tired because you have a newborn. And I took Katie to go see my mother-in-law and she lives Mm -hmm. about 40 minutes away and we were driving home across the Buckman Bridge here in Jacksonville Mm -hmm. and I just had that feeling that people have you know like driving where you have an intense I'm gonna fall asleep like my eyes were just closing and it was really scary and I just was focusing on this truck I was on like a four-lane bridge filled with traffic and lots of trucks and I just started thinking like I'm gonna hit that truck in front of me and so I kept focusing on the license plate and then I had that momentary like I fell asleep at the wheel and then the next thing I knew this like slow motion license plate of the truck in front of me was coming towards me like kind of slowly but also Mm -hmm. fast it was like the strangest thing and I slammed on my brakes and we didn't hit that truck by some miracle so then when I got off the bridge I pulled over and I napped for like 20 minutes just to kind of take the edge off and then I drove home and at that point I just gave the baby to my husband and I said like there is something wrong with my sleep but I called back that doctor who had just said it'll all be fine Mm -hmm. Um, and I said there's something wrong with my sleep I just um you know I fell asleep at the wheel and I almost got in a really serious car wreck So at that point, they said, okay, maybe you should go and have a sleep study. And so I had a sleep study (laughs) and I went to get the results and they said, you have obstructive sleep apnea and and we're going to give you a CPAP. So I kind of left with more questions than answers. Um, So your story is, as I understand it, um, began, began. Uh, in your early teens? Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah. But you weren't 
diagnosed or nobody addressed your issue at that point. You didn't start, you know, just to kind of lay the timeline out, mm-hmm. um, your mental health journey didn't really take on the form of a mental health journey until later, correct? Correct. I would easily say until I was 19 or 20. You know, I think for me personally, like I kind of went under the radar because of that, because no one in my close circle believed in mental health. It was something we just didn't talk about. You mean they thought it was, it just doesn't exist or it's to be, to be frank, it's like, take a pill and it'll go away. But like only if it's like really bad. And I feel terrible that that's, that was the attitude, but it was just, it wasn't something we talked about at school. It wasn't talked about, you know, just, it wasn't. Not in your friend groups, not in your family. It just wasn't talked about. And I don't. You know, I don't feel like my family, like, I don't put them at fault for not knowing. They, we just didn't know. We they just didn't know. know. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just, okay, this is how we're going to balance the depression. This is how we're going to balance the anxiety. And this is how we're going to balance the ADHD. And for the longest time with the ADHD, I thought that was just in boys. That's mm-hmm. what I was taught. And I was just like, well, this is just how my mind works. And it doesn't, it doesn't get better than this. Now, when we diagnosed with ADHD, was that in middle school, high school? Was that in your twenties? It's in my twenties. Okay. And, and just so our listeners will know, we will get to this because the part of your hindsight, what we're finding out is at the core of this does actually relate to children's airway. Um, And and that's why this is such an important message for parents to hear. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you turn to your website, to your blogging, to become your platform? Really, to I, I know it started as dialoguing your journey, but it really has become this platform that is now this outreach to others that have, you know, that have a very similar journey. Yeah. So... I want to say that it started sometime in 2016, 2017. I don't, I don't remember the exact time, but I, I just remember I was sitting in a therapy session with my nurse practitioner of mental health and I wasn't doing very well. I, we were trying all these different medications, trying to find the right mixture and levels. Mm-hmm. I was sick a lot. And I would, I just remember telling him, I'm so frustrated with my lack of process, like progress. I'm just so I like, I just felt so cooped up in my own mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. And he suggested, he's like, Hey, you know, have you thought about writing things? Um, because of all the medications that I was on, I wasn't safe to drive. So oftentimes my mom, she would drive me to my appointments and I was sitting in the car and I was telling her what we talked about in this, in the therapy session. And she said, I'm going to take it a step further. I think you should start a blog. Which, which absolutely makes sense. Now at that time, when you started your blog, Mm -hmm. you you knew 
that you had anxiety, you knew about yes. depression at this point mm-hmm. and your ADHD, correct? So you knew yes. about those, those three. Yep. At what point did your diagnosis of sleep apnea and then the hindsight, everybody let's look back and realize, oh, wow, there was some kind of an airway issue way back here that we missed. When did all of that transpire? Oh, probably. Um, so I was diagnosed with sleep apnea actually in the summer of 2017. And to be honest, finding the sleep apnea thing was a complete and total fluke complete fluke. Really? How? Yeah. Um, I was, I was talking with my nurse practitioner of mental health Mm -hmm. and I wasn't responding well to medication. I was improving with the blog, but like, you know, that just kind of keeps me rolling, but not improving as far as you mean, like your anxiety, your ADHD, that. Yeah. Okay. But something to note too, is I was physically not functioning well. I was not getting out of bed, really. I was having a hard time eating. I was dealing with a lot of headaches. Um, Exhaustion. I was exhaustion. I remember sitting in um, my therapy appointment and my therapist for short, he was like, well, I think we should get your sleep study. We should check your sleep quality. And I just looked at him like he was crazy. I was like, <laughs> sleep is not the issue. I'm sleeping too much and I'm tired. Like, I, I understand, like, it's like, yeah, there's a problem with your sleep. You're just still tired after your sleep. But like in right. my head, it was crazy talk. I was right. like, no, no. Which I think is very talk. common for people. I sleep. I'm fine. That's not the problem. Yeah. They didn't realize it's the quality and yep. Mm-hmm. So today's discussion is a little different, and I want to make sure we level set that, especially with parents that listen to our show. The condition that we're going to talk about specifically today, it is airway related. However, since it relates mostly to adults, however, there is kind of a correlation that we wanted to make sure that parents of younger children heard, and especially, you know, those that are teenage and and up. So the organization that you're with is living with idiopathic subglottic stenosis. And it is a group on Facebook that anyone can find, correct? Yes, that's correct. So let's go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about what is idiopathic subglottic stenosis. Okay, so it's it sounds like a really fancy name, really complicated, <laughs> but when you break yeah. it down, it's not as fancy as it sounds. Idiopathic means we don't know what causes this. Mm-hmm. Subglottic is um, just the area just beneath your vocal cords. So if you touch your neck and you feel it vibrate, just beneath there will be your subglottis. Uh, So this is the location of the next word, stenosis, which means narrowing. And you may well hear stenosis in relation to hearts and spines and all sorts of places within your body where you can have stenosis. But this is a narrowing just below your vocal cords um, with no known cause. So, and then, but there are several causes that it could be. So uh, they often start with idiopathic because investigations need to be done in order to find out a bit more information. So 
right? And I think that's what makes everyone in our group with this condition so, I don't know, unique, I guess, because you hear the stories over and over. You know, we were all very healthy for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, we were athletes. We were active in our community, active with our families. And then, boom, we have this an airway disorder. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it does seem to come, so for adults, it, it sort of appears generally 31, we're between 30 and 50, that's generally most patients, and myself, I was 29, so I was at the lower end of that when I first had my symptoms. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the age group for adults, and yeah, it's, it's very hard. I mean, one way your airway can be damaged is if you've been intubated, and there's a bit of debate amongst doctors about how long um, it is before scar tissue will turn up in your airway if you've been intubated. But generally, it's accepted uh, that it's within two years of, of that operation. And it often will start growing quite slowly, but build up over time. Um, uh, at the moment, there's almost a pandemic of this uh, condition from airway intubation from COVID patients. Mm, uh, doctors mm-hmm. around the world who are treating our disease are treating many, many more patients, and they're people who've been in intensive care with COVID and been intubated during that period, and now their airway is damaged and they're coming right. back later with this um, trouble with breathing. You know, I look at my story and I'm just unbelievably great, grateful that I have a story to tell because we caught it early enough. But what mm-hmm. happened is my son Finn was born and and I am a working mom. So my husband and I both had jobs. We, we lived in Manhattan. It's, it's not cheap to live in Manhattan. It wasn't like I was going to take a year off. But I knew for those three months that I had that I thought, well, breastfeeding is important and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to make a go at it. But okay. When he was born, he wouldn't latch well. And when I mean he didn't latch well, it was a real struggle. I thought, okay, somebody's going to have an, I mean, this is kind of, this happens probably more than not, you know, people have this. So I, I asked the lactation specialist there and they said, oh, you're just doing it wrong. Just adjust and keep pushing. And they kept me, they kept trying to give me ways of physically moving him, but it just wasn't working well. And I was conditioned in a way to think, okay, nobody's, nobody in the hospital seems to have answers. And so this must, I must be an anomaly because if this is something that happened on a routine base, I mean, the babies coming in and out of here, like, in right. like right. I see this all the right. time. So if this is not working for me, then it's, it's me. It's definitely me. Sure. Something's going sure. on here, but you after about that, right. Right. And so, but I, and I also thought that somebody would have answers. And even within that week, I had no answers, but I'll go, I'll go back the next day after just trying to try my best. I took that bottle that was in his little bassinet in the hospital and I just stuck it in his mouth. And he's like, he is just sucking away. He is like trying to live (laughs) here. I am trying a different path and it's not working. And I just felt this huge relief that I can feed my child. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we talk, we talked to the pediatrician about this and 
again, nobody's alarmed. Nobody offers a multiple um, solutions or reasons why it's just, oh, okay, well, he's losing weight. Here's a six pack of formula. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Now I'm, you know, I'm off and running. Sure. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, I, I bet you if I stick with this, it's going to work. So I, I'm trying to nurse him at home and then pumping in between that not much is happening there either. So I was like, it is definitely me. But I, I really went went at this for like two months. Meanwhile, okay. I'm also supplementing with formula. So this is kind of my two months with Finn. And it he he started to gain weight. He was fine, but he needed the supplement of the formula. And okay. So after about two months, I just said, this is, we're not getting very far. Let's just go straight to that. And that's where we went. Yeah. And when people or children, or just anyone in general, when the tongue is not in the roof of the mouth and Finn's tongue was not in the roof of his mouth because it couldn't physically stretch it up there. Nor did he know that it should be up there because by introducing a bottle, I'm teaching him that his tongue goes down Mm -hmm. and then his cheeks, these muscles are pushing in on the teeth and uh, for adults, and, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, or for children that have posterior teeth, but, but, you know, you're not going to notice this as a baby, but what'll happen is, um, and I learned this when I worked at the Dawson Academy, Pete Dawson, he was one of the fathers of occlusion, dental occlusion. And he would say when teeth and muscles war muscles always win, which means oh. that the teeth are going to go where the muscles tell them to go. So if there's no tongue in the roof of the mouth, and your cheeks are doing all of the work. So for Finn, he was sucking on a bottle. Then we went to squeeze pouches. And the problem with these pouches is this is going to continue to develop these cheek muscles, which are going to continue to push things in. And when mm-hmm. the tongue is not in the roof of the mouth, it's not going to develop out. So not only was the tongue tie a problem for not being able to feed or breastfeed, it was a problem because he had a recessed chin. And my husband's asked, the doctors, you know, why is this chin so far back? And they're like, oh, well, that's normal. It'll come in. Okay, great. Chin's mm-hmm. coming in. Good to right. know. All right. We didn't right. know that one. So all of these already signs of disordered breathing or obstacles to proper optimal breathing were already there. And I had no idea. In this next segment, we'll focus on healing and how we approach patient care. Let's listen as Dr. Stephen Hall and Dr. Becky Andrews explain their approach of healing from a more holistic position and how they challenge the status quo definition of what healing could and perhaps what it truly should look like for both us and our children. Right. But I remember a day when I was a third year resident. So I was in my seventh year of medical training and I just finished my afternoon in the clinic I was walking back to the residence room to dictate my notes. And I was just thinking about the patients I'd seen that afternoon and, and asked myself the question, well, what prompted them to actually, you know, pick up the phone, make an appointment and come in? Mm-hmm. What, what are they really looking for? And I thought about, you know, the person with hypertension and the person with diabetes and, and, um, and then I thought, well, what if they're really looking for healing? And I stopped in my tracks because here I was in my seventh year of medical training and I didn't know what healing was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I know I, that, that still, you know, boggles me. Yeah. Yeah. And because for one thing, 
medicine likes to be a scientific endeavor, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in science, we always define our terms so we have a precise language so that we all know what we're talking about when we talk right. to each other. Which makes so how, sense. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how could there be this multi-billion dollar science-based healthcare industry with no concept of health? No true definition, right? No true definition. So I thought, mm-hmm. well, I got to remediate, remediate that problem. So I started searching for a definition of health or healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And seven years later, I started to get an appreciation for why <laughs> nobody did. Well, nobody's had one. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, so, but what I noticed in that time was that even though I didn't have a precise definition, I, and I'd gone through several by that time, there were mm-hmm. uh, like one, there, there was back in that day, there's an organization called the American Holistic Medical Association. And their definition of healing was balance and harmony with the cosmos. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good, but how do you do that in the exam room? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> like, okay, Mrs. Smith, today we're going to put you in balance and harmony with the cosmos. Mm-hmm. But what I realized later, yeah, yeah, exactly. And what I realized later is, no, that's actually the effect of healing. That's not what healing is. Mm-hmm. That's a result of healing that you come into that balance. Even though I didn't have a definition of healing, I could kind of recognize it when one of my patients experienced when you it. When saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I asked myself the question, okay, so by that time, I knew healing was more than just how your physical body functioned. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you needed mental health too, and you needed healthy relationships and all, all kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. The healthy sleep, that, that all kinds of things. So I got to thinking, well, so if, if somebody has symptoms, that's a clue that they need healing. Mm-hmm. And the resolution of the symptoms is a clue. The healing has happened. It's not the actual healing itself. So the, the symptoms mm-hmm. a clue. And when the symptom goes away, that's a clue that it has happened. So I started looking at my patient, well, what else happened to them then besides the resolution of their symptoms? Mm-hmm. And what I saw was that they had learned something. And what they had learned almost inevitably had deepened their understanding of themselves. It had given them a deeper perspective of who they were, and it, it helped them be more in their power and the, the, along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. And so I asked myself the question, well, what if that learning about who they are is the actual healing. And again, that might just be a side effect of the healing, but what that did was that got me focusing on, well, I want to, when I'm treating a person, I want the net result to be that they also deepen their understanding of themselves, not just have the symptom go away. Right. And so I started looking for therapies that both, you know, helped a person find the imbalance that's being expressed as a symptom and correcting the imbalance, but at the same time, learning about themselves. So that's, that's basically what I've been trying to do for the last 37, 38 years now at this point. So Western medicine has a fundamental assumption that disease can just happen. It can just be bad luck or, you know, like almost like an accident that you got this chronic degenerative disease, which in Mm -hmm. in our philosophy is that the body will heal itself if nothing's in the way, that our bodies have a natural inclination towards homeostasis. And so as naturopathic doctors, instead of just trying to 
cut off and make get rid of the symptom or eliminate the symptom, we look at why is the symptom happening? What is that telling us? And, and what we call it, we call it uh, find and treat the cause is one of the words, the phrases that we use. And another mm -hmm. phrase in our philosophy is remove the obstacle to cure. And that one's a really mm -hmm. big deal. And I really, that's, okay. that's a really juicy one that I've always really liked. Um, and that yeah. is what is in the body's way of healing itself. The other way we really are different from conventional doctors is that um, we don't fragment care. So, you know, in the conventional system, especially now, you, they, they, mm -hmm. they pretty much don't have generalists. Um, mm -hmm. Like really your primary care doctors have been reduced, especially in here in Texas, what I've seen is primary care doctors don't actually give care at all, unless it's just an antibiotic. Anything right, it's else, symptom response. Mm -hmm. to somebody, some other specialist. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I, I, that that level of fragmentation, I think, really utterly destroys any hope of in integrity of care, right? And so the mm -hmm. naturopathic doctors are trained to look at all the systems, and most importantly, how they connect to each other, right? And so, right. Uh, you know, one of my favorite examples of this would be somebody that has, I think, I would. Yeah, some, I'll just go ahead and give the example now. Um, somebody, like you say you have a patient that has a sinus infection and has like IBS, and then mm -hmm. they also have anxiety and depression. Okay. Uh, conventional medicine would send them to a gastroenterologist, an EENT, or an allergist, and a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Correct. They would treat them as if those were three completely separate things. As a mm -hmm. naturopath, I would be like, Hmm, that's all the same cause. One of the areas we advocate for Children's Airway First is for airway examinations at birth. In this segment, you'll hear how Dr. Tasha Turzo and Autumn Henning explain why these early examinations and interventions are so critical for identifying the signs of airway and oral facial dysfunction and in preventing long-term health problems. Oh, just there's really no good way to ask that. I mean, how do you yeah. approach that? You have a, a, yeah, you have a patient that's coming in that you know they're having issues, and here they are. They're getting ready to either have orthodontic work done, you know, in their teen years, or now you're in your 30s or 40s, and you had that work done, and now you're presenting with chronic allergies, sleep apnea, things of that nature. Yeah. Well, it begins with early intervention. So I'm all hyped up about children. Um, I have children myself, actually, they're now young adults, or they're trying to be young adults, we'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I'm very passionate about children. And if, you know, if, if I, I could probably retire now and feel fulfilled, because I know I've helped so many children. It's about and now it's all about education, it's educating parents, educating um, mm -hmm. my colleagues, educating the dental world, the malfunctional world about what are the signs that we see right when a ba baby's born that is going to tell us that this one is going to have an airway issue? So the airway issue typically comes before the teeth comes in. So the teeth mm. come in, the teeth are, are coming in after the second swallow are already in place. And the second swallow have more to do with increasing oral volume than our teeth do. Our teeth are simply coming together so we can now have a couple of things. We can chew, 
Um, mm-hmm. And the chewing and the function of chewing and how we're chewing very much dictates the growth of the mandible. So this is okay. epigenetics. This is how we use our function, how the functions in our face work is what develops a face. Got so it. learning so, how, yes, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. So, th- so the, the airway issue most of the time is there at birth or is it just... It, the signs of dysfunction that lead to airway issues, dysfunction. yes, okay. can, can be identified right at birth. And it really has to do with how they nurse, the second swallow of nursing. And it has to do okay. with, can they nurse on both sides? Can they actually have the range of motion to turn their neck? If they don't, that's the subtle torticollis. So the birth experience is one of our biggest formative experiences that we have in our life that shape and form our head and our face because our head is what's opening up the cervix. So the whole entire, how the baby's positioned, the kind of forces that are happening, the intervention that's happening from below up, let's say, have a Mm -hmm. huge effect on the functioning of our face and our head and our neck. So the hands-on, if, if in my ideal utopia, every <laughs> single newborn would have an osteopathic treatment from someone who specializes in, in cranial osteopathy, every single, and if I can get them early enough, cause I will, I will go to the delivery room with my mamas that I treat when they're pregnant. I was about to say at birth. the baby at birth, at birth, but you know, bring them to me a week later. I'm still happy. But those are ones, if I follow them all the way through, they don't need orthodontia because what we're doing is integrating the functions. So it's the functions that get, get, that go in the wrong direction that create a structure Mm -hmm. that then is holding a maladaptive airway. How how do you, as a parent typically notice something like this or is are, are there signs parents can see? I mean, obviously you're not going to notice if the tongue's touching the back of the teeth or not, but what signs as a parent can you look for, especially in an older child? So, yeah, I mean, um, all of these, it's interesting how a lot of things come back to myofunctional issues, right? Mm -hmm. And so we look historically, you know, um, did they have early feeding, breastfeeding issues, things like that? Um, Do they have crooked, crowded, misaligned teeth? that tells us that the tongue is probably not in the right spot. Are they a picky eater? Um, And so they're having trouble chewing certain textures or um, things like that. Do they breathe through their mouth or snore? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a sign that things are not developed well. There's an obstruction, um, whatnot. So there's lots of signs out there that can relate back to the mouth. It's so interesting how um, the way we use our mouth affects things that are seemingly not related. Right. That you don't think about like picky eater, for example. Yeah. Yeah. How does that correlate? So, you know, typically, um, oftentimes it goes along with tongue tie and when the tongue can't control the food, well, what happens is kids get anxious. They gag because they can't move the food appropriately, or they spit food out, or they learn to like swallow it whole. Um, And so 
these kids have these bad experiences with a certain texture or type of food, and then they start avoiding it. Um, and we, we tend to think of it like, oh, they just don't like it, or they're just being picky, when really it's an actual physiologic issue. Along with airway dentistry, one way we can improve oral facial health for children is through myofunctional therapy. In this segment, you'll hear from Lauren Ruffridge, Carice Legere, Daniel Drew, and Brittany Bailey on how myofunctional therapy can help children thrive physically, emotionally, and mentally. So as far as, you know, children's airway, the, the way that this kind of associates with us is, yeah. I, I would, I can correct me if I'm wrong, it's going to be more on the medical side, right? Because then you're dealing more yep. with jaw development, high arch mm-hmm. palates, tongue ties, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yes. And so the way it also ties in is that I've um, studied oral facial myofunctional therapy, which is what we'll be talking about a little bit later. And then um, also oral restrictions or tethered oral tissues, which are more commonly known as tongue tie, lip tie, cheek ties, or buckle ties. Um, so cheek ties. Yeah. You can even have ties in the inside of your cheek that can impact feeding. Um, those don't impact it the most when you're comparing to the tongue and the lip, but Mm -hmm. it's all relevant to each individual. So, um, so I've done continuing education in those areas, but they all tie into airway because, um, everything starts with our airway. And if our airway is not intact and if we are not able to adequately breathe through our noses, which is what we're supposed to be able to do, Uh it then kind of has a ripple effect on the entire oral facial structure development and the functions in which we use our mouth, our nose for. So breathing, speaking, and eating. And eating. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it all ties in because those are the those are the areas that I'm working within. And the airway, of course, dictates so much more than most parents and people know that. Um, that's why I'm so glad that you're bringing awareness to this whole topic. And I love everything that you guys are doing. Um, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And really help us understand what tongue ties are. And, and if you wouldn't mind expanding a little bit on that, because I didn't realize until recently there was something called a cheek tie. I had no idea. Um, and if you're working with a younger child, you know, is this something that if it were to happen to an infant could impact something like breastfeeding? Absolutely. So when we're talking about ties and especially Mm -hmm. in the oral cavity, so in the mouth, we're looking Mm -hmm. at the tongue as one. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're looking at your tongue, there is a natural soft tissue connection that everybody has. It connects the base of the tongue to the floor of the mouth. Now, some people have one that is short or very restrictive, so they can't get a lot of movement from it. It's very tight or it's just very short in length. And so they can't get optimal function from their tongue. And our tongue has a lot of different functions that it has to perform. So our tongue can elevate, it can protrude, it can lateralize, it can cup, it can retract, it does all these different things. But if you've got a short connection or a tight connection, that's a frenum that is going to be impeding you from making a lot of those movements or from doing so optimally, that's when we would consider you tongue tied. I'm very okay. big on function over appearance. So just because okay. something looks like a tie doesn't necessarily means it is one. And that's a whole another podcast for another day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when we're looking at our cheeks, because mm-hmm. you just discovered cheek ties, yeah. and there's also lip ties. 
top mm-hmm. and bottom, there are little frenums. And if you've ever like done a scary face or you've ever flipped your mm-hmm. lip up at somebody for whatever reason, why one <laughs> do something like that? Right. You probably see that connection. It goes mm-hmm. from the lip to the, um, the ridge where the gum line of the teeth and it goes from the cheeks on the inside. If you ever take your tongue and you're rub around. So sometimes Mm -hmm. those are also tight and restricted, and those can impede a lot of different actions. So it's going to impair for children, when we're talking about babies specifically, actually, when we're talking about the tongue tie, the tongue has to be able to come over the gum ridge, that lower gum ridge in Mm -hmm. order to get and compress against the nipple appropriately to get a great pumping action for breastfeeding because you've got to right. pull in a lot of that tissue and they've got to extract that milk. It's that liquid gold, right? Right. You can't get it if they are unable to move that tongue forward to that spot or unable to compress or lift up adequately against the breast tissue. So sometimes you'll find that it's painful because they're using just that ridge as they're trying to compress that tissue against the breast mm. and a lot of mothers are suffering with that. Sometimes they can't get an open enough uh, gape of the mouth. And so that's a flange when they're breastfeeding, they can't get that opening of the mouth because it's tight on the lips. Their lips just can't expand to go up and over to really grab a lot of that nipple tissue or our sucking pads on babies are very uh, prominent and important because that's what they do. That's how they gain nutrition when they're little, they have to suck. Either it's a breast or a bottle, but they're sucking in that motion to gather the liquid. So those sucking pads, you might not be able to suck as adequately your buckle ties or those cheek ties may impede that. So that's our babies. But then as you get older, let's say we don't catch it when you're a baby, you get a little older and you're a child, all of these can impact speech, feeding, breathing, sleeping in numerous ways. And it just compounds as you get older and older. So get through uh, childhood into adulthood. It's really going to be our high risk people for acid reflux, different digestive diseases, um, a lot of them with obstructive sleep apnea, or just several sleep breathing disorders that, you know, we could go on and on about the different manifestations, it manifests so differently in everybody, but it is very important to be aware of. So when you're resting your tongue and your roof of your mouth, we talk about this a lot, you know, and, and I've, I've said in other podcasts, I always try to do this, which I'm sure parents are doing when they're listening to it. We all try to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What does it look like? <laughs> so when you're, when you're trying it at home, how do you know if you're doing this correctly or if you have a tongue tie? Ooh, yeah. Um, we want the tip of the tongue. Mm-hmm. on the spot or right behind the two front teeth on that little piece of skin where right. we would typically um, maybe burn on a piece of pizza. Um, and then we want the middle and the back of the tongue fully up. And this is me all the time in sessions, putting my thing, my hands up. This is your tongue. Right. Okay. Um, and if you're able to suction your tongue gently to the roof of your mouth um, comfortably, um, that's kind of an indication maybe you don't have a tongue tie, but if you're, you're doing so and it's effortful and, um, there's other muscles that we have to engage, um, like in your neck or in your eyes, as you're lifting your tongue up, um, mm-hmm. then that's kind of an indication of either like a tongue tie or a tongue restriction. Um, 
But it could also be low tone, low tongue tone. And when you were talking about jaw surgery, I just kind of want to go back and revisit that just for for a moment, because there are times, yes, that is the only option. I get that. But it was kind of the way you said it that really resonated with me. So you were being advised to do that more from just cosmetic versus, you know, when people are looking at it from, okay, wow, you have a retreated jaw, let's bring it forward. So, you know, as a parent, how would you know the difference? How did your parents know the difference? You know, it, and I agree with you, time and place, it is definitely needed at times for, for us, how we were being advised for it. It wasn't for the root of the issue. It wasn't even for the issue. It was just like, wow, you're really narrow palate. Mm -hmm. Your jaw is retronathic pushed back. Um, And so those are good points. And we went into Maya with the mindset of, okay, let's try this first, Uh, you know, because it was such a big leap and due to other layers I had, it was going to be really risky. And so we wanted to be fully certain. And some people do go through Mayo and then they still need jaw surgery. And it, but Mayo was a good, let's narrow it down. Let's really learn deeper what's going on orally. And then after we've done that, let's see what is needed for jaw surgery. And for me, it, it wasn't, wasn't no longer, um, needed or recommended. Wow. So the Mayo was enough to help with the retreating jaw in your case? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. My, my jaw was back, but really is because of my tongue and Mm. you know, the tongue, it has a resting place. And for most people prior to Mayo, it's low. Mm. It's on the bottom of the mouth or kind of hovering or pushing Mm -hmm. forward on teeth. And especially at night that has the potential for the tongue and the jaw to slide back. But part of the Mayo um, goal pretty much for everyone is to get the tongue up on the palate. And when you do that, the jaw automatically comes forward. Mm. So for me personally, again, everyone's so different. I was able to learn um, a proper tongue placement, which then rippled into the jaw alignment which then helped my jaw joint, the integrity of it and my clenching. And for me, those were just the missing puzzle pieces. It it wasn't something we needed to change structurally. It was more behaviorally. Thanks for joining us for part one of our 2022 year in review podcast. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review or a comment telling us about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Parents are also encouraged to join us via our Facebook parent support group, The Airway Huddle, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash airway huddle. If you haven't already, check out our new YouTube channel. You can find a variety of informative original video content pieces, as well as the video recordings and excerpts from select Airway First podcast episodes. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website, or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. 
And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working hard to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. From all of us at Children's Airway First, Happy New Year. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.